Amen. Thank you so much, worship team. That was a good time of worship. How's everybody doing today? That's a good song. I like that last song. First time I heard that song, it became one of my favorites, and it's still one of my favorites. That line, this is messing with me, Shelby. I had to move my microphone for uh, interference, and it it's really bothers me. I always put my hand right there. Ah, that last, that last verse that we sang on the third, the break of morn, that's, that's exciting. That's exciting. There's so much. We talked about this a little bit last week that all fear is ultimately rooted in a fear of death, and we sing that song confident that death has been defeated. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? Jesus plucked the sting and the victory from the jaws of death. Thank you, Jesus. Good morning and welcome to Revelation Rock. This is our family room where we worship God. We fellowship with each other. We share joys and burdens. We pray with and for each other. Encourage each other to walk with Jesus in freedom and to share the good news of salvation with our world. For this morning, even if you're visiting or if you've been here a couple of times or you haven't been here for a while, we welcome you as family into this space and into this time. For centuries, society understood that science and scripture were not mutually exclusive. This is one of the oldest principles in human existence. The concept that they are at odds with each other or that the development or focus on one is exclusive to the other is a relatively young idea or principle. It's also an incredibly foolish premise as time and time again science reveals not just a little bit of evidence but bulwarks of evidence for what scripture has already revealed. The deeper we dig into science, it's not revealing that there's little traces of science or of, of science that are reinforced by scripture. In fact, the deeper you dig into science, the more you find explosive and monumental evidence that supports what scripture has declared for thousands of years and just now science is coming around to realizing this. This isn't new. This isn't uh, I mean like I said this the principle that science and scripture go hand in hand is age old. The idea that they're opposed to one another is fairly young. Now by young, I don't mean they came up with it in 2005. I mean, in the last few hundred years is really where the concept that those two things butt heads kind of originated. And it stemmed from the belief system that there was no God or that God was dead or that God had left us all on our own. But before that, and most Standard logic and reasoning that we base all of our understanding on supports that the two get along. In fact, we see the creation science is a crystal clear example of this. Any scientist worth its weight will find that the deeper you dig into science, the more you see there has to be a creator. There has to be. It's, I mean, you can wish that it was evolution, but you're not gonna get any, you're not gonna get anywhere. The further, you, the further we dig, the more we realize there had to be a creator behind everything that is created. The science of jet streams in the ocean. This one maybe you're not super familiar with, but it's revealed in Scripture and was actually discovered because of Scripture on the topic. Back in the 1800s when they were shipping stuff, boats, 17, I think it was in the 1700s, uh, 
late 1700s, this guy's like reading through scripture and he sees that there's, the Bible talks about paths in the sea. And he's like, well, if there's paths in the sea, we gotta find them. A path is an easier place to travel than somewhere where there is no path. So he set out to discover them and reveal them. We travel by them. Shipping still to this day, 2023, when we're not sure, you know, society is not sure about almost anything, we're still utilizing these principles. Prenatal development is clearly revealed in Scripture. All throughout Scripture, we see it's not like a little bit, dots here and there. It is clearly explained prenatal development all through Scripture. The list goes on and on. This morning, we're going to look at one of these revelations in Scripture, which society has acknowledged and, and for all time, and yet it does its best to not acknowledge that it's in Scripture. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 6, if you can bring that up, Jody. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. That's in the New King James Version. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now this is, in the church, this Scripture's got all kinds of... Uh, uh, Reputations of people like, well, I know so and so. They grew up in the church, and look at them. They wandered off here, and the preacher's kids. That's one of the biggest things that I've got sort of my heels dug in about this whole preacher thing is like, I got kids, and I remember preacher's kids. But this principle is age old. We understand this in society. In fact, modern science is revealing this to be true. If you want to bring that chart up, we're going to come back to this chart a few times, Jody. This is going to be a little bit of, uh, you got to think about this a little bit with me. We'll have to look at it. Hopefully everybody can see it. I tried to find as clear of chart as I could. This is not Christian research, everybody. This is just secular development study. If you see the line, the dark red line that starts at the top on the left, says that's, that represents the brain's ability to change in response to experience. So as the brain is developing along the bottom edge of the chart, you'll see the age. So birth and then age two, four, six, eight, ten, all the way on up. Now the line that starts at the bottom on the left, if you can't read it from where you're sitting, is the amount of effort such change requires. And if you notice, two to ten, there's no effort required. It's just the brain's ability to change in response to experience is exponential. It doesn't take any effort on their, on their part. And then as that top line starts to curve down and our brains become a little, they lose elasticity. They, it's a little harder for them to stretch and form new things. That begins to diminish naturally and consequently the amount of change required, the amount of effort required for such change increases. Does this make sense? This is not, you've not, missed where you're going and wandered into a science class. We are not super, super scientific folks here, but there's some principles in this that directly relate to what we saw this morning with the kids up here, what, where we're at in the story of the Exodus, and what we're doing moving forward as a church. Now, I have ordered notes, which Martin gave me a hard time about this morning. We may not go exactly according to the notes that we have this morning, but there's some basic principles. This chart reveals what the Word of God has revealed for thousands of years. Train up your kids while they're young. The older a person gets, the more difficult learning and changing can become. Anybody, anybody, we don't have to have like testimonials, but anybody understand this principle in their own life? 
You form the habits you form as a child, they're fairly easy to perpetuate throughout the rest of your life. The older you get, the harder it is to implement change, to see the world differently. I was reading through studies of child, early childhood development, and I'm sure some of you in here know a lot more about this than I do, but the child's brain is 90% developed by age five. Wow, and this is not like, for those of you that are thinking, I'm gonna Google that stat, go for it. You'll find it all over. This isn't one, it's not, I found one obscure report that says, so understood, industry standard. The industry standard, we understand, kids' brains are all, 90% of the neurons are connected and doing what they're supposed to do, and I probably explained that wrong, but it's 90% developed by age five. So you think it matters what we're teaching the kids, what, what they're memorizing up here. Train up a child in the way they will go. When they are old, they will not depart from it. It's not saying they're never gonna deviate. There's nothing, we look at that scripture and we're like, but so-and-so, get over the so-and-sos. We're talking about basic principles and they will return. If we train them up, children will return. Are there exceptions? There's always exceptions. But as a principle, this is a principle worth following. And it's reiterated, even, even secular children development. It's like, wow. You get to age 30 and what are we gonna learn? I, you know, I've heard, we were talking about this at Easter yesterday about common core math. Apparently it's a thing. I don't know what it is. I'm dreading it a little bit. I know some basic principles. Most of what I've heard are jokes about it. And it's like, how are we as parents supposed to learn a new way to do what we've already known how to do? What we learned in that easily affected part of the curve of our brain where it was easy to learn things, now we're supposed to change that to teach our kids a harder way to do it? This is not, a, I'm not uh, campaigning against Common Core. I don't even understand it. I'm just saying there's new things are hard for us to learn. Now, little brief, brief kind of recap from where we've been the last four months-ish. So, we're talking about Exodus. Everybody remember, m many of you, most of you have been here for many of these teachings that we've done on Exodus. We're talking about Exodus. The children of Israel, they come up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord, they'd been there for hundreds of years and they'd become slaves. We, last week we looked at they developed a slavery mindset. They saw the world as they were victims. They were at the bottom. They were always going to get a negative result. That's what slavery, what bondage will do to us. We looked at that last week. So that generation comes up out of Egypt by supernatural deliverance of the Lord, they come up out of Egypt, and we're not, for sake of time, we're, we're like flying like 30,000 feet over this, for, but I just wanna bring everybody back up to where we're at because it, it fits where we're talking about today. So they come up out of the land of Egypt, they end up in the wilderness, Mount Sinai, and they're walking around, they're wandering around at the base of the mountain, and Moses and Joshua are up on the mountain, the Lord comes down, 40 days goes by, and they're like, this is like taking a long time, could we do like a, maybe an idol? Let's make a calf. So Aaron goes along with it, who was commissioned by the Lord. We read this, and this just, I, I, it gets me. And then Aaron lies, he helps, he fashions the calf, and then he lies to Moses about it. And they wander around, and we saw the first week we looked at that, maybe it was the first month we looked at that, we talk about waiting, and how when we wait, as humans, we tend to wander. You couple that with the slavery mindset, and for the next 
what turns out to be 40 years, they can't get themselves into a position of believing God. They end up, before the 40 years begins, they end up, last week we looked at the border of the promised land. This is the land that had been promised for generations to their people. And the Lord had supernaturally brought them to this place through provision. They had eaten. They had been protected. They had seen battles won. All kinds of supernatural. The Lord going before them. Examples. They get to Kadesh Barnea, which is at the southern edge of the promised land. And they're like, oh. We see in Deuteronomy chapter 1, they're like, we got to send out some spies. And we tend to send out spies in our lives from a position of fear, thinking that spies sent out is going to lead us in safety. We'll send out the spies. We'll see if it's going to be okay. Let's send out. Let's, and Moses is like, fine, we'll send out spies. So they send out spies. The Lord signs his approval. We'll send out spies. They send out spies. Ten of them come back, and they're like, there's all kinds of great things, but my goodness, the cities are fortified. The giant, there's giants in the land. We saw ourselves as ants, tiny people. We're, there's no way we can do it. Caleb and Joshua, the, the only two spies that end up making it to the promised land, they stare like, yeah, we can make it. It's an awesome land. We should go right away. The other 10 are like, no. So the people who sent the spies out from a position of uncertainty, they feed their uncertainty. And they're like, let's not go. The spies brought back a bad report. It's a great land, but huge giants. And who are we? It's only like the Lord that goes before us. And we talked last week how if we inaccurately value the presence of the Lord in our lives, we will come to the Kadesh Barnea of our life, wherever that is, of our week, of our day, and it will be, ah, boy, I don't know. Let's send out some spies. Let's send out some feelers. Let's test. Let's pull a Gideon and we'll, let's lay the, lay the wool out and we'll see what it, it's like, oh, no, let's do it again. Let's send out more spies. And we operate in a, from a position of fear. But this brings us to an interesting thing. We saw last week, because of the generation that came up out of the land of Egypt, they make it to Kadesh Barnea, to the edge of the promised land, and their unbelief overwhelms them. They don't get to go. But who does? Their kids. This is very interesting. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39 reads... Moreover, let's pick up, let's go up to uh, verse 36. Can we start there, Jody? I'm sorry, you got 39 prepared. I'll just read 36 to 39. This says, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he shall see it, and to him and his children I'm giving the land on which he walked, because he wholly followed the Lord. He didn't have any doubt in his heart and his mind that the Lord could deliver it into their lands, into their hands. Verse 37, the Lord was also angry with me for your sakes. This is Moses talking, saying, even you, Moses, shall not go in there. Joshua, verse 38, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall go in there, encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. He's going to be at the point of this thing. He's the tip of the spear going forward. Verse 39, moreover, your little ones and your children, who you say will be victims who today have no knowledge of good and evil, they shall go in there. To them I will give it, and they shall possess it. That word possess, if you look it up in the Hebrew here, it talks about not just existing in a place, but it is putting down roots. It's drawing sustenance. It is, it is making that place their abode. You know, there's like they used to do in the, when they were founding this country, there was, they could go out and um, pioneer. There was a 
couple different acts that were passed in Congress where you could go, and if you could settle a land and you could produce a crop and you had to turn over your books to the, the land department every however many years to show that you were making a profit, you could have the land. The Homestead Act was one of them. There was like three or four of them. And they could prove it. That's what this is talking about. Not just not making a place out of it, but putting down roots, building houses. This is, becomes our abode. Now, this is interesting. We look at that chart. If you, can you bring that chart back up for me, Jody? You're going to get it work out this morning. I want to look at this chart with, with a mindset towards the slavery concept. Okay, we're going to put this to, we're going to, you guys got to think with me a little bit this morning. I want you, if anyone wants to sleep, you can sleep. But we, I want you to think. If you want to see something, it's pretty neat. So the brain's ability to change in response to experiences, you get to about 25. That's where those two lines cross, and it becomes infinitely more difficult to change your brain in response to experiences. So we looked. I'm kind of excited about this, so everybody hold on. If you have a seatbelt, Please put it on, put your tray tables in the upright position, keep your hands and feet inside the ride at all times. Uh, it's exciting. That first 25 years, where was the generation that didn't make it to the promised land? The majority of them spent those formative years of their brain's development as slaves. They spent the majority of their lives as victims, being told what to do, being beaten, being more expected than they could deliver, and it was all on them. Now, we look at the story, and we shake our heads, don't we? Anybody else read that story and think, man, I am so full of faith. If I would have saw one of those things, I would have marched right into the promised land. But with 25 years, all of their formative years had been as slaves. So they experienced all those crazy things, all the miracles. I dare say that generation experienced more physically manifested supernatural miracles than any other generation of humans ever to live. They saw incredible things. But because of that ingrained slavery mindset, those formative years had them, so we just can't change. They had just experienced the 10 plagues. They had experienced the Red Sea, and they get to the base of Mount Sinai, and it's like, what about a golden calf? Let's do that. And we shake our heads, and we pull our hair, and we're saying, what's the matter with you? We see what's the matter with them. Their brains were developed as slaves. Now, I don't want anybody to hear hopelessness. If you're past the age of 25, there is all kinds of hope. We got the Holy Ghost now, and don't give up hope. But I want us to see something, and I want us to take away a value of a ministry that we are, we are facilitating and we're growing. The adults who witnessed all the miraculous signs in the land of Egypt and the trip out were not in the formative years of their lives. And so the effort required for them, as a broad, again, as a broad-spectrum generation, we see Caleb and Joshua were exceptions to this. There's always exceptions. To change, the effort required for them to change how they see themselves was too great. But, one of uh, Tom's favorite statements in all of Scripture is anywhere where you can find something that says, but God. But God was doing a new thing. The children of this generation, they were in their formative years where there was almost no effort. Think about this, church. If you're, if you're sleeping, please wake up. The children of this generation, this generation was wandering all over. They were unsure, and they, every time you gave them a chance to unbelieve, they took it. But the kids, 
They were growing up, and what did they, they saw their parents' unbelief. They also saw what it yielded them. But you know what they saw that formed them and shaped them? They saw miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle after provision, after protection, after guidance. They saw it when it was easy for their brain to form according to the experiences they were having. Their brains were being shaped. Their their whole outlook on the world was being shaped by what? God's faithfulness. Why do you think, and I thought about this as I was going over this again early this morning, I was thinking about this with relationship to these kids and their parents. And you know, there was a, we looked at this a few weeks ago that at Mount Sinai, the Lord's like, I'm gonna just smoke them all. We'll just be done with them. Remember that? We looked at that and the Lord's like, I'm gonna just be done with this and I'll, st- I'll do a new thing with Moses. And Moses is like, no, 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 don't. And that's a great, I love that story, but I think about from the Lord's perspective, he's got these kids and he knew these kids, like this is not, believe it or not, this chart was not news to the Lord when he saw it. When somebody put it together on whatever sort of a program that was, he wasn't like, there it is. He's known this all along. And in that moment, you knew he was aware there's a generation up and coming that is being shaped by every miracle they see. They're learning to trust me. The children of Israel came up out of Egypt. They wandered for 40 years because of unbelief until all of that generation who unbelieved, in quotes, died off with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, who were full of faith. We just read Deuteronomy 139, more of your little ones, your children, who you say will be victims. See, they saw their kids were gonna be victims too because they had this victim mindset. It's like, well, y'all are gonna be victims too. All of our kids, they'll never be able to hack it in the promised land, but the Lord was aware of this reality. The generation who wound up taking the promised land did not grow up with a slave mentality. Rather, they grew up witnessing God's faithfulness at every turn. The oldest of them would have had memories of the plagues in Egypt. Even the youngest of this conquering generation would have had 40 years of remembering their clothes and their shoes not wearing out no matter how far they'd walked. Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 5 is where we see that. We see that no matter how far they walked, their clothes never wore out, their shoes, as I've led you for 40 years in the wilderness, your clothes have not worn out on you, your sandals have not worn out on your feet. The very youngest would have had memories of this. This generation up and coming had witnessed firsthand God's patience, his faithfulness, his mighty hand of deliverance and provision. God's faithfulness was on full display even during the wilderness years, during their formative years, while their experiences were easily affecting their brain the way they see and interact with their world. As I think about this church and the way that we're growing, and this is where I'm I'm skipping around on what I had prepared, so bear with me if we wander a bit. You, you guys all know the saying, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. Maybe some of you heard that when you were growing up. Maybe some of you are telling that to your kids now. You say, you show me your friends. It's actually, I think, more like an aunt and uncle thing. Parents, it's like the aunts and uncles are like, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. You need better friends. And I dare say from a ministry standpoint, when I, if, I, if I was to meet with someone who was going to start a new church, I would say, you show me your children's ministry and I'll show you your future. It's like, what children's ministry? Like the flannel graphs and stuff? Yep. Now, you say, well, we don't have that many kids here. 
What's our future look like? I'm not saying size. This is, this is the American myth of ministry, that everything is measured by numbers. It's not measured by numbers. Ministry, if we want to change the world, it all is with the emphasis, the priority, the, the percentage of our emphasis we put on the littles coming up. And not just having them and having snacks for them, but teaching them the word of God. We see this as an example. What they witness, while it's easy for them to, brains to be shaped, will affect them for the rest of their lives. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart. You know, this reality is true even on the flip side. We love this. This is good in the church. We got kids, and we can hear them sometimes. We can see them during Sunday morning worship and whatnot. It's like, we got kids. That's great. But you know, this is the thing that I want to check. I, I, shy away from challenge, but I want to encourage us to see the opposite is also true and the enemy knows it. Train up a child in the way they shouldn't go and when they are old, they also will not depart from it. It's so important in this, you can feel pressure, I'm not inviting you to feel pressure, you can choose to position yourself where you feel negative pressure this morning and I I'm sorry for you. Don't feel negative pressure. This is an opportunity before us to bring up the next generation. It is so easy to look around at our society and just be hopeless. Oh, the world's falling apart. Nobody knows what boys and girls are. Nobody knows what up is and down is and gravity doesn't even work anymore in 2023. And, and it's just, we can get down in the dumps, can't we? We can form a, poor, we talked about this after the whole Rona deal. Society was just done. It's like, there's no point. There's no hope. Jesus, to be back by five or should we order pizza? That was where we were at. And I'm excited for the return of the Lord by all means. But I'm excited for this generation coming up. We can change this. We're not, we may be on the brink of the promised land in a lot of areas, but we got kids that we're bringing up and we're gonna teach them the word of God. We're gonna instill the word of God. We're going to train them up in the way they should go and then trust that when they are old, they will not depart from it. Another example of this, we're not gonna read the whole story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Is everybody familiar enough with this that we can just talk through it? Everybody good with that? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we don't know anything about their folks, do we? We don't know their names. We don't know their relationships with them. But you know what I can tell you beyond shadow of all doubt? Someone, and it might not have been biological parents, but it may have been. Someone carefully instilled in those boys when they were growing up the magnitude of the God they served. That did not just happen. They didn't just wake up one day and it's like, I don't know, let's defy the king. Let's, it, I mean, it could be hot in the furnace, they were surely footed. They knew exactly what they stood on. They did not, unlike this generation at the brink of Kadesh Barnea, they did not devalue the Lord's presence with them. They understood exactly what it meant that the Lord was with them and that the Lord heard them. Someone taught them well the reality of their covenant with God and the magnitude of their God's presence. This principle transfers directly to the New Testament where we see the Apostle Paul commend Timothy for the instruction he received as a child. During Timothy's formative years, his mother and grandmother had impressed upon him the importance of a life of genuine faith in God. The only way to effectively and authentically convey this, though, I will tell you, is to live it. You know, a, a friend of mine, I was, I was at a leadership conference years and years ago, and he was this 
the guy remembered, I didn't remember it, but the guy that I was with remembered, that one of the teachers had shared, more of life is caught than is ever taught. Like, you can try. We can have blackboards and we can have words. We're going to teach our kids. That'll go so far. But it's what they catch from you that really sticks. It's what they catch you doing. It's how, how they catch you responding and reacting. You can say, well, we're not going to compare ourselves among ourselves lest we devour ourselves like the Apostle Paul said. And then get in the car, leave from church and be like, well, it must be nice for so-and-so. They got a brand new car. I can't believe, I don't even think she works. And I think he's home at three. And they hear that, they catch that. And they hear, so is it don't compare yourselves among yourselves or is it the, what about so-and-so? They catch things from us, just like a cold. You can try, try, try. And as parents, you know, we got littles right now, little kids. And so you go somewhere and, well, you know, we, it's like you hear, you go into a room where there's a whole bunch of kids and there's at least like 50% sneezing, coughing, hacking, and then it's like, where's our kids? Are they around? Yep, they're around. In fact, yep, they was just coughing in each other's mouths. And it's like, this just, that's how life works, though. That's how habits are taught. That's how, so the things that we as parents instill in our kids, they're going to have repercussions. We're going to train them up. You know, you can say, I'm not sure if I'm up for training up kids in the way they should go. And you can say, I don't know if we want to participate that in our household. You are. Whether you think you are or whether you think you aren't, you are. If you think, I'm not going to train them up, that's what you're teaching them. We are training up the next generation. It wasn't, we're going to read, let's read, if you can bring that up, 2 Timothy 1, verses 1 through 7. See, it wasn't that Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him everything he would ever need to know. Let's read this, and then we'll come back to this. Paul, an apostle, a special messenger, personally chosen representative of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace, inner calm and spiritual well-being from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord, I thank God whom I worship and serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day. And as I recall your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I remember your sincere and unqualified faith. Stay with me, church. I remember your sincere and unqualified faith. Wow, Timothy must have been an outstanding person. The surrendering of your entire self to God in Christ with the confident trust in his power, his wisdom, his goodness, a faith which first lived in the heart of your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. I'm confident that is in you as well. That's why I remind you to fan into flame the gracious gift of God, that inner fire, the special endowment which is in you through the laying on of my hands with those of the elders at your ordination. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity or cowardice or fear, but has given us a spirit of power and of love and of a sound mind, sound judgment and personal discipline, abilities that result in a calm, well-balanced mind and self-control. You catch the important, what I'm drawing out of that passage for us today this faith that Paul was commending in Timothy resided first in his mother and grandmother. They brought him up in this faith. Sometimes it's uh, intimidating. Whether you're uh, signing up, you're going to be a children's ministry teacher, or whether you're 
raising up kids, or maybe you're expecting a baby. Maybe you got little ones at home and you're like, hopefully they're not picking anything up yet. Maybe you're halfway through, or maybe you got grandkids or nieces or nephews, and you can feel, I would love to bring them up in faith, but I don't have all the answers. I don't know all the right verses and stuff, so I could just teach them like, to tell the truth. I could do that instead. Instead of trying to bring them up, and what if I tell them about Jesus and the hope of the resurrection, and they're like, so how does that work? I had this conversation recently with my daughter, and I had to tell her I don't know. I don't know how it works. Not sure why we can't visit. Not sure why they can't visit us. That's what faith is, believing. It's not understanding everything, it's believing the word of God. I wanna encourage you guys this morning, each of us, myself included, that it's not about having all the answers. Sometimes I think in Christianity we can get wrapped around the axle of if I don't have all the answers, I'm not sharing anything. Because I don't know why when we pray for a miracle with X, we experience the miracle right away. We pray for a miracle with Y, it's decades later and we still don't see it manifest. So if we don't know why, let's just not do miracles. Let's just not pray for people. Let's, I understand it's in scripture, but there's lots of things in scripture that people don't practice today, so we'll just leave that. It's not about having all the answers. It's about trusting and having faith in the Holy Spirit and believing the word of God and taking for these, this next generation doing just like Lois and Eunice did, walking in faith ourselves so our kids, grandkids, the people underneath us catch it and being willing to share what we do know. Because we do know some stuff, don't we? How many of you know, if, what does it take to go to heaven? Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. You know, it's period, exactly. There's not, well, and then there's point A and subpoint Roman numeral and all this. No, it's believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. The subpoints, the Roman numerals, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees struggled with. It's what the religious elite struggled with. The people that had spent all their formative years under Moses, they spent all of those early 25 years learning all the do's and don'ts. And then when Jesus comes along and they have the opportunity to be born again, it's like, what about the first 25 years of my life? Should we still, let's just do that too. We could mix that in. And we end up with letters like the letter to the church at Galatia. It's like, no, 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 no. You got born again because of Jesus. Faith, grace, not works. The most important ministry that we will ever endeavor to accomplish is that of Eunice and Lois. I want to reiterate that. It's people that aren't super famous. If you hear of a baby get born tomorrow and they're, and they're like, oh, what'd you name it? We named him Eunice. Like out of the Bible. Most of us are like, I don't think Eunice is in the Bible. Eunice is in the Bible. In fact, the ministry that Eunice and Lois undertook is the most important ministry that any of us in this room or within the sound of my voice will ever undertake because they conveyed accurately the faith of Jesus Christ. The most important ministry we will ever endeavor to accomplish as believers is to accurately communicate the gospel to the next generation. You want to be involved in a ministry, share the gospel with the next generation. The Apostle Paul, you might be here today and you're like, well, I don't have any kids and 
my nieces and nephews are all grown up. I don't have anybody to, I don't know if this, maybe, maybe I should have stayed home today. No. The Apostle Paul demonstrated what it means to always be bringing up the next generation. You know, uh, we don't have any at all even sort of inkling that Paul had any kids. We have no idea if he had any nieces, nephews. Obviously, with no kids, he was never a grandpa. And yet, how many times do you find Paul all alone? Almost never. He's got somebody. It's a lot of times a different somebody. He's writing letters to Titus. He's writing letters to Timothy. He's got Barnabas. He's got Silas. He's got somebody coming up with him that he's training up, giving them. Now, did Paul have all the answers? We tend to think, well, he must have had all the answers because he wrote half the New Testament. He had a lot of answers, but he was just willing to let them walk with him. Walk with me. I'll show you what I do. Walk with me. I'll show you how I talk. Walk with me. I'll show you how we slip through this crowd where they're trying to arrest us and throw us in prison. Also, sometimes we get caught, beat, and in prison, but the Lord, he'll be there with us. Watch, we're going to lead the, watch me. You know what, it's midnight. I know your back hurts. Silas, this is a rough deal. Let's have a worship service. Because I bet somebody in this prison doesn't know the Lord Jesus is their Savior. So we'll have a worship service, and then when this whole thing's all done, the guy who beat us and threw us in here, we're going to lead him to Jesus. He was willing to walk with people, bring people alongside of him. Not saying, I got every answer, but saying, you can walk with me, I'll show you what I got. I'll show you where the Lord's showing me. I'll show you where the Lord is leading me. He gave us an example. That's what what discipleship is. It may be for you that teaching children's church is your call. And I want you to know that we are 100% behind you. We want to equip the saints to teach the next generation. Maybe your ministry is teaching youth group. We got a couple of awesome youth leaders, and they give of their time and their energy and their resources, and they're exhausted every Thursday. You say, Thursday? Yeah, youth group's Wednesday night. They're exhausted every Thursday, and they have great conversations, and they're training up the next generation. And you know what? I dare say everyone that's ever served as a youth leader at Revelation Rock does not have all the answers. I know that because I know them, and they've told me they don't have all the answers. So they bring what they have just like the boy with the loaves and the fishes. I don't have everything. I got the loaves and the fishes. I got a little bit here. I know the gospel. And you know what? That's all you need to know. You don't have to have all the answers to share what you know. Maybe it's as simple. This week, Jane was talking about Holy Week. Today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that Jesus came back into Jerusalem. He was fixing to be crucified. There's a lot of people today that have no idea. In Fulton County, they have no idea what Easter is really all about. They may know, well, it's about like, you know, Jesus' resurrection. Does that sound like you have a clue, the magnitude of what Jesus' resurrection means? We think, I, I drive by, you know, I drive a lot for work. I travel around, I weld people's broken things together. And they're all over, scattered all over throughout the community. And you know what else is scattered all over throughout the community? Graveyards. They're everywhere. We don't even think about them when we pass them. Just this last week, I passed a graveyard and I was thinking about the resurrection and what that means for that little piece of dirt. Like, that piece of dirt's got no idea. That's just sitting there, dig a hole this week, dig a hole next week, dig a hole the following week. And one day, 
every hole that was a believer will be undone. Hallelujah. The magnitude of Easter, it ain't about Easter bunnies. We're going to preach about Easter next week. I'm excited about Easter. But it may be as simple. What we're talking about today may be as simple as somebody that you're not sure if they know what Easter's about and you just have a discussion with them. Maybe a young person that's like, what? What is Easter even all about? Like, I'm confused. Is it the bunny? Is it the eggs? Is it, I mean, where do bunnies get eggs? We don't know what it's all about. And you get the opportunity to say, actually, it's way bigger. It's bigger than the worst day of your life. It's bigger than death itself, which is the ultimate fear of all humanity. You say, well, I don't know if I have all the answers for the questions that come after it. That's fine. Sow the seeds that you have. Sow the seeds. Plant what you got. Teaching children on Sunday mornings, it may seem unimportant. I know my wife is teaching the kids right now in one of the classes, and sometimes she's like, I don't know why we do this. It's exhausting. I don't know if anybody gets anything. It might seem unimportant. You might look at your children's lesson. If you're teaching kids, you may look at the children's lesson. You might be a part of vacation Bible school. Look at it, and it's like, how do they get anything that's, I'm not sure if this is worth it. Like, I struggle sometimes. My wife has been like, why don't you help with, and I'm like, I struggle because I, this is going to shock all of you. It turns into this way long thing where they're counting ceiling tiles. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. I didn't understand the last 11 words that he said. Oh, look, there's 31 ceiling tiles. It may seem unimportant. Reading the word with your kids. Anybody ever read the word with your kids and you close it and you're like, I don't think they got anything from that. I've done that before. We do that. We read the word a lot, and sometimes it's like, I don't know. Reading the word with your kids may seem like not a big deal. Sometimes it's easier to just chase them to their bedrooms. Go to bed. Cultivating prayer and faith in God, it might seem optional. In our culture today, this is the last thing, but everyone's starting to be concerned about lunch. We're almost done. Cultivating prayer and faith in God might seem optional. In our culture today, it's a big thing to let everybody figure it all out themselves. Well, you know, maybe they want to be. I don't know if they want to be a Christian. We don't want to force it on them. The reality, these things are of the utmost importance. It's our job as parents to train up our children in the way they should go. And it's not your job to have it all figured out. As Eunice and Lois showed us with Timothy, they just showed Timothy authentic faith, rooted and grounded in what they understood, which sets your kids up to learn more than you understand. When you give them a good foundation, just lay the foundation. We talk a lot about construction here about building things, and it all starts with that foundation. You lay the foundation of what you got and trust the Holy Spirit to lead your kids into the next stage of that building project. It's our primary task to pass along our faith, to be confident that the Holy Spirit within our children will help them sort out what we get wrong. That's one of the hardest things is to be able to say, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't have that figured out. And to trust that the Holy Spirit within them will draw them and lead them and teach them and further unfold the things that are hidden in Scripture for them to find, for us to find. 
You see, society's aware. Back to what we started out talking about. Society is aware. You teach a kid something, you instill a kid with something, they won't depart from it. Is the church. Society's aware of it. They know it. You question that, just turn on the TV. Just go buy the latest handheld device and you'll see. Society is aware. Cultivate. Just do it over and over and over and over and over again. I grew up in the generation where when I say I grew up, I got older during the years where if you said the word addiction, we automatically thought about something you smoked or something you injected. That was what was addiction when I was a kid growing up. When you heard the word addiction, that was what you thought of. Today, the most, not that those things are gone, but this right here is the most prevalent form of addiction in our society. And it teaches, it teaches all of us repeated habits and it does it effortlessly. Society, and I'm not anti-phones, I have one. My wife has one, we use them. They can be tools for sure. But I want us to be aware as parents, as grandparents, as cousins, as aunts and uncles, as people raising up just older people in our churches. You're older, everybody in this particular room right here is older than somebody in this room, in this building, in this church. I want to encourage us, it matters. Let's learn Let's learn to teach the next generation repetitively. Is the church aware? Are we awake today? Are we looking around? What do we got to do? And, you know, I shared at the beginning or earlier, I said, you show me your friends, I'll show you your future. And then we talked about in a church, if you show me your children's ministry, I'll show you your future. As I was thinking about this body right here, you know, uh, there's, a, there's a, another thing for adults. We talk about money. You know, will you show me your checkbook and I'll show you your priorities. Everybody, anybody ever heard that? It's like, where are you spending your money? That tells us what your priorities are. I'm not saying that's not true. But from a ministry standpoint, I thought, the checkbook so, shows some stuff. But really, when I look at this, at Revelation Rock, I'm like, it's pretty encouraging how the percentage of people that are in this room right now, if you would all take a minute and look down the rows that you're in that are involved in vacation Bible school, in uh, children's Christmas programs, in teaching the youth group on Wednesday nights, in teaching one of the classes back there, or in working in the nursery. Every single one of those jobs are people that are pouring into the next generation. And it may seem I don't know if it matters. Does vacation Bible school matter? It's like I poured juice, most of it on the floor, some of it on the kids, and a little bit of it in the cups for three nights in a row. Does it matter? Yes, it matters. The work of carrying that gospel, carrying this message to the next generation. You see, life, more of this faith life is caught than is taught. And the next generation has caught all of you sharing the gospel with them. So I commend you in that. I'm encouraging you in that. If you would, stand with me this morning. I'd like us to dismiss with a declaration. And then we can go make it. We'll still make it to everywhere to eat pretty good time today. I hope this message has lent some clarity to what matters. The gospel of Jesus Christ matters. We talked last week about understanding accurately not just clearly, but understanding accurately what it means for the Lord to be with us. And this is the next thing with that, is what are we doing? 
Can we instill that in the next generation? We declare this morning that we will hold the line with our kids at Revelation Rock. We will take the responsibility of training up this next generation seriously. With humility, we declare the gospel over and into the lives of our children that it may be instilled into their hearts to choose to walk by faith. We realize this world isn't our friend and it isn't fixed yet, but we choose to take heart and be courageous, knowing that the Lord our God goes before us. We choose to walk in perfect peace with our minds stayed upon Jesus, trusting in the Lord always. Bow with me if you would. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this church family. I thank you for each person that is in this room that is choosing to pour their faith into the next generation. Father, I pray that courage would well up on the inside of them, uh, that they would continue boldly. The Bible tells us the wicked, they flee when no man even pursueth, but the righteous, they're bold as lions. Father, I just pray this boldness over each person in this room that as you have brought people to their mind that probably a lot of them aren't even in this church building, people that they can share the gospel with, the next generation that they can choose to say, I'll extend a hand, come walk with me. Show you what I know. Father, I just pray that the courage for that would well up on the inside of these, this family. Pray a blessing and a hedge of protection over each of us as we go from this place. That the peace that passes understanding would guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thank you so much for each person that's here, for all of the littles that are in the back right now and the youth that are coming up. And some of them aren't even able to be with us this morning, but I just pray a blessing over each of them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You guys are dismissed.